0: high-CBD, high-terpene genetics out of San Diego the last few years. Um, we produce them out of a greenhouse complex, um, and we have been doing our best to improve those genetics, get those genetics out to farmers so that they can have genetics that they can trust, and as well as provide some information on how to grow those. Um, and I think one of our biggest pieces of information is to keep it small. Sources. I think that's one of our biggest lessons in cultivation is is, uh, gauge what you can do and don't do anymore. Um, So we're happy to answer any questions you guys might have on rowing, breeding, um, and eventually making a success out of your farm.
1: Hi, I'm Stephen Reisner. Uh, uh, I'm the owner of Potaponics, and uh, my specialty is aquaponic cannabis production. I've been Teaching classes on it and doing commercial scale operations since 2013. I uh, originally started in Colorado uh, and I've since moved on to working on projects on uh, quite a few different continents uh, Canada, uh, Jamaica, uh, Southern Africa, uh, Switzerland, um, Spain, uh, all over. So, I had a chance to kind of see a lot of different markets and how they evolved over time and, and how they were able to adjust with those different climates as well, uh, different diseases and different other factors that come into that around the world and then focused on um, kind of giving back to the community. So making sure that the cannabis farms that I do work with have a humanitarian component where they're donating a proportion of their fish or providing food to local communities and and trying to make it more integrated and part of the community rather than just the weed guy. Um, So uh, I also run the Growing With Fishes podcast, which is the longest running aquaponic podcast and we have over 500 hours of aquaponic cannabis education if you want more information on that. And I look forward to helping answer your questions on living soil aquaponics uh, do quite a bit
0: of both. Alright, we hope you guys have some questions.
1: <laughs> Go
0: ahead, sir. Okay, cool.
2: In your personal experience, is there a better option of growing better and quality product flower between aquaponics and liminal soil?
1: Sure, so I've found we've done a bunch of side-by-sides with uh, living soil and aquaponics and hydroponics and we found the biggest differences in terpene expression uh, and in speed of growth um, is much more accelerated in aquaponics and you have more ability to adjust it. Um, And then also you just have additional revenue streams, right? So like I have extra income coming in to help pay the bills or when something unexpected comes in in the form of fish sales and some of the other stuff that just helps add to that, you know, making sure that you never end up in in that pinch that sometimes you can end up in between where you got to spend a bunch of money and and wait for a harvest or something like that, you still have a little bit of a trickle coming in all the time, um, which helps a lot with that. But the biggest thing is is terpene expression boost in both living soil and aquaponics uh, compared to, you know, more sterile traditional type cultivation. um, You do see quite a big boost in in terpene expression in particular, as well as, um, you know, certain cannabinoids will express higher uh, dependent, again, Entirely cultivar. dependent. Of. I don't know if you guys have experience with living soil versus other methods or anything like that. We use living soil in ours. I have no experience with aquaponics unfortunately. So
3: uh, well, I mean, you know, living soil is we, we do okay with that. I, I've heard there's obviously some really good benefits though to aquaponics being able to granulate the nutrients that are going there. So um, I don't know that I can add any more to what he already said.
0: I think I would add that. Um, Aquaponics and hydroponics have an incredible potential to um, produce, like you said, really high terpenes, really healthy plants. I think you also have that same potential from living soil, um, and you may have that potential at a lower cost. And Keeping your, your, your bottom line costs down, using nature as much as we possibly can, rather than buying equipment, materials, nutrients, supplements, if we can cause our own living soil to to be that source that our plants need, then we can cut our bottom line down um, and still maintain a very high quality. As opposed to using synthetics in our soil, um, I think that would be the the one thing we want to try to avoid. When we start using synthetics in our soil, we break down our plants immune systems, we break down the the earth itself that the plants grow from. Every every year we'll become a a more toxic environment for our roots. if we keep the synthetics out of our soil, rely entirely on, on um, beneficial bacteria and living soil to break down the nutrients that already exist in our soil and to provide that to our plants, we can cut down our cost, we can improve our field on a yearly basis rather than toxify it. Um, and the vast majority of us are growing, I think, outside and not in, in indoor situations. When you get into an indoor situation, to be able to use aquaponics, um, think is also a way to really cut down our bottom line. Uh, but in an outdoor situation, we want to rely on nature as much as we possibly can and let nature pay the bills and provide the quality. And that's a total possibility. We just have to open that door by not using synthetics, by charging our soil with, with um, beneficial bacteria and um, letting nature do it.
1: And just to add what he was saying, um, that's probably one of the biggest things I see people do wrong. They're coming into hemp cultivation and especially larger scale um, because they go and say hey i have a cornfield i have a soybean field i have a corn field that i've had for years and years and we treated it with you know monsanto or syngenta or whatever the heck they're calling themselves these days and or whatever traditional farm program which is fine right like that that allowed those farmers to provide for themselves at the time but if i take the cannabis plant and put it into a sterile field it has no ability to gain defenses uh, and, and have a baseline reference uh, to those microbes. So, for instance, we see higher instances of mold outbreaks, septoria outbreaks, and other diseases because the soil is dead. There's no microbes in the soil to stimulate that plant's immune system, for uh, that works kind of like vaccines do, in order to give it the plant uh, uh, the ability to recognize molds and other pathogens and then defend itself against them. Um, plants do much better in living soil where they have those non-pathogenic reference points in the soil. Living soil or aquaponics both provide pretty much a, a similar type of uh, immune stimulation um, in terms of b- really boosting that. So if you are going into a new field uh, or your first or second time into hemp, make sure that you're doing microbial inoculation before you even put a seed or clone in that field. It's extremely important. You need to treat the soil and make the soil alive again before you put those plants in, and you'll have a much better success, and it's not very expensive. You know, you can brew thousands of gallons and do hundreds of acres for, for not I mean, just a couple of hundred bucks. It's not expensive at all. You know, and, and you can scale it, you can produce your own if you want to get into Korean natural farming and get into IMOs and all that kind of stuff, and, and really produce a lot of your own products as well on that regard. But it's the number one thing I see that that kind of sets people up to fail from the beginning when they're getting into larger scale cultivation. Thank you very
3: much. That's exactly what I wanted um, to hear. just bought uh, 103 acres um, in central Texas, thinking more about getting ready for hemp production. And I'm worried about the soil because there's no weeds, there's no earthworms. You know, we've just spent the first year kind of digging around and getting to know it. So we were thinking about what's the protocol we need to follow just to get ready to heal our soil. That sounds like it's the right path. Where else could I go to learn more? And how long will that take? Uh, you know, there's a guy that's going to be presenting this afternoon. I'd highly recommend you go check him out. His name's Sage Hal. Is he in here right now? No. Uh, he's a USDA certified organic farmer that did outdoor stuff. And um, if you're, and I think I heard you're trying to figure out how you can get your soil nutrition up. Um, if I, and he would be a really good source because he was kind of talking about how he would go visit the chicken farm that was nearby and he would pick up chicken pellets and then he'd go get earthworm pellets and then he'd go get a big truckload of crab metal, uh, and, and you know, they, they blend it in, they'd work it into the soil uh, and then as, as was already mentioned there, that inoculation of the soil with the compost teas. Um, I, I, we're going to be experimenting with a product called Symbiotic, which is uh, rhizobia, uh, bacterial inoculation, uh, which is very beneficial to root zones. Um, so I think just kind of a mixture of figuring out where your sources are for some of the, the um, nutritional foundations. Something Sage would probably be a really good guy to talk to about.
1: I, I, would, I would also be very, my first concern, the fact that you told me you had no weeds. Makes me think they're using it, they used a broadleaf herbicide, especially if it was a, a cattle farm. And some of those have a two year half life, right? So it, you might not even be able to plant that for another You might have to just do mitigation for the first year. Um, uh, but again, the best way that I've found to break those down in my personal experiences in, in the last five or so years doing larger scale head projects is fungi. The more fungi you can get into that soil, the faster you're going to break down those those broadleaf herbicides, the fungi do a better job than anything else in terms of just breaking them down more rapidly and getting them out of the system. Um, so you know, doing a good IMO inoculation and, and reintroducing a bunch of saprophytic fungi or mycorrhizal fungi into that field is going to give you a, a really, really big boost in, in, help in accelerating that breakdown. And making it go faster. There's also different um, things that you can do to help bind it up, but that's it's going to be hyper specific to whatever it is in your soil sample, and that would be you know without seeing the soil sample, I wouldn't be able to. As far as nutrients go, um, you can you know obviously find lots of different organic amendments out there. Just be careful when you get to organic amendments. Um, kelp in particular, I'm seeing people go kind of overboard with and failing for arsenic accumulation and heavy metals. In fact, I had a, a farm last year in Oklahoma was four times the legal limit they went way overboard with kelp. So be mindful of kelp, rock phosphate, uh, azomite, any of those. It's not to say that you can't use them, but use them in moderation and, and be mindful of the actual heavy metal content of the particular source that you're using because they're not all created equal. Humic acids can also get you into that same kind of emission because some humic acids are made from like coal ash and not from actual plant material. So you have to be careful on where it is that you're sourcing. Just because it says humic acid doesn't necessarily mean it's garden friendly. Oh, and um, I wanted to also recommend, uh,
3: based on what you are saying, a couple of products. One of those uh, is by a company out of Midland. They're like a former oil and gas company. They've actually got this, um, I think it's like a fungi inoculant that uh, will go into the soil and help eliminate the synthetics and the salts. So they're bringing like some tech over that they use in the oil wells there, and now they're using it. And his, his company is called... Uh, Texas Tornado Organics, I think, his product's called Ganja Green, um, and so if you're having the issues, that's a good point to bring up there, um, on that, I think, uh, as well. And then the other thing, too, is, and I don't know what your experience with, we, um, we really like alfalfa milk. It, it does really good there, um, during beds. They work really well, alfalfa milk works really well in compost teas, uh, to get, to get that, um, that, uh, what do you call it? your stand, if you will, in your compost tea, it really uh, gets it a lot higher and gets it firming. So, just something we can do. And you can find alfalfa pretty easily.
4: small self-sustainable micro-farm here in the hill country. We've owned the property for 25 years, so we know the history on it. Um, it is a lot of limestone. and um, So I've heard, um, I've done some reading on So I know that all of the wood that went in there is everything that's been in there, is clean. What do y'all? Um, what are your thoughts on you know using wood ash as an amendment? Is it good? Is it bad? Um, just any information you have, because it's something that I have readily available that is free. Sure. So you know, if I have that product and I can use it, I mean, it's going. wood ash is generally more
1: much more heavy in potassium Uh, it doesn't have really much nitrogen in it at all Um, uh, something like uh, manures or things like that are going to be much more nitrogen heavy Um, so you're not going to have much nitrogen it's very high in carbon high in potassium that's about it it's also going to raise your ph right so be mindful if you add a lot of of ash it's going to spike the ph which when your ph is out of you know out of the lower sixes it's going to immediately push, you know, make more minerals harder like, and more or less bioavailable, so you're seeing things like iron deficiency and some other stuff that might not even be a deficiency it's just the pH is out of range. So I would be careful going too crazy with the wood ash. You can absolutely use it as part of an amendment, but don't use it as anything more than like one or two percent because you're going to end up, you know, screwing your pH up too much. So The only thing that I'd add to that is you can also use it to
0: fix your pH. If you're starting yeah. off with a field that's too acidified, yeah. the wood ash can be a tool to raise that pH during the
4: Again, yeah, limestone is, you know, it, it creates an acidic environment, so that's part of what I'm doing is trying to get in that, in the zone, and uh, so those were just some of the thoughts I had.
0: Most commonly used as a tool to, to balance that pH.
2: Have you guys found any sort of hemp varieties that do well in soilless extraction? So think, listen, say for like a like a raw product that you want to mass produce to put into whatever tinctures or whatever it is you want to do, just something going at it more sulfurless versus a uh, hydrocarbon extract. Because a, a lot of the times that you extract with uh, with the CBD varieties, you get a hot product most of the time. So I don't know if there's any varieties that you guys know of that may um, be able to test a little after it's extracted.
1: One of the biggest issues you have is that a lot of the, C, the C, a lot of CBD is harvested early, like before those trichome heads are full size, and then also, in general, um, full trichome heads on CBD cultivars tend to, in general, be under 90 microns, so it tends to just by default kind of sets you up to be harder to begin with because most of your traditional THC cultivars are growing the those 70 micron, you know, 90 micron, 120 micron sizes, and you simply just don't, they don't get to that size. That's not saying that they can't, but a lot of the cultivars, the majority of the CBD cultivars simply don't produce those trichol heads at that size. I know there's some of, the, some of you guys have a lot better experience with that, but in general that's what I found in my personal experience with CBD is that, again, it's like CBG as well, right? People are harvesting intentionally early in order to not get hot for THC unless you have really really stable genetics. But a lot of people are just doing that because of the way that they're trying to not hit those THC spikes. Also, the other issue you run into with rosin in particular is, uh, unless your state's really cool about THC mitigation, when you concentrate the CBD heads into rosin, you're over your limit in terms of what you can have from THC. Not every state's that way, but a lot of states are. So it's really made it a challenge to make solventless that is the same quality of THC uh, of the THC products because you simply just automatically end up as either hot or your yields are super low because the trichome head size is very small and they don't have a lot of you know oils and things like that because it's a tinier. I don't know. I don't have any experience with solventless
3: extraction, but one thing I would point out is that uh, Greg Autry from Sweet Cincy is speaking. Uh, he might be speaking right now, actually. No, actually, I think he's at 1230. Um, go watch him and talk with him because he's running a solventless uh, processing facility, and they're, they, they're analyzing what you just asked about, like what varieties
5: are best for that. He'd probably be a good, good person to ask that question to him. And then, as far as upcoming uh, legislation, keep an eye on what's referred to as the cleanup bill. Uh, if we can get a total THC cap of, uh, bumped up to 1%, like you were saying, we've got 8 to 12 week of flowering, we've seen the THC spikes, the people harvest early and uh, handicap their Uh Hopefully, we'll get a legal workaround for that in the upcoming month. But jury's still out. we got to see you in the next week or two. Yeah, well, th- that 1% thing won't come from the state. So that's going to have
3: to come from USDA first. And uh, the federal government, uh, Senator Rand Paul has introduced what's called the Hemp Act. I don't think it's gone anywhere, but it would actually raise that federal 0.3 to 1%. The one thing, and I want to clarify, because this may be what you're thinking about, and I think a lot of people hear this number and they get confused. If you've heard that they're raising the percent to 1, that is wrong they're raising is they're raising the negligence threshold. Right now the USDA sets the negligence threshold at 0.5. They last year came back and raised that to one and that's what they're getting ready to adopt uh, in that fixed bill is raising the negligence threshold. Just so you know. So don't don't get too excited about flower until nine. I've had a couple of people ask me about that. No, 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 no. still under 0.3 total THC here and it will be that way for a while it looks like. So I think it depends a lot on, on
0: your market for your product and whether your, your buyer is looking for a product that is THC compliant, or they're looking for a product that they're OK with the THC being hot, but they're, they're looking for um, more in their CBD or more in, more in their other kind of ingredients in the product. Um, yeah, absolutely, you need to mature the plant to get the trichome sizes that you're looking for. And when that plant is mature, your THC is hot. So it's kind of time to catch 22 that in most cases we're able to solve the problem by having our pre-test approved and having our field approved, and then having a market that doesn't necessarily look for THC that's below that .3 threshold. There's a tremendous amount of marketing opportunities for material that is technically hot but was approved and harvested legally. So I think there's two different Concepts there between harvesting when your your um, product is legally compliant and pre-testing and approving when your product is legally compliant. In most cases, we're able to mature for thirty days past our pre-test, which is plenty enough time to get full trichomes, um, full maturity, full terpenes. Um, so it's really important that we test early, test often, and have our field approved for harvest long before it's actually ready to harvest. And then we can continue to mature with our products so that we can do the solvent l- extraction effectively.
3: I'd like to piggyback actually what you just said there um, on the rules is that one of the things that they might adopt with that new law, the Hemfix bill, is expanding the testing window from 15 days to 30 days. And to, to kind of explain there, what you can do with that theoretically would be to call in your state test at like week three of flower and then they maybe come out by week four pull your sample and you've got at least another four weeks to technically leave that plant in the field and let it flower and as long as that first test comes back okay then you're clear to harvest actually by all definitions of it. so
5: just so that's that kind of makes sense you are required to keep that paperwork, but please do so. On the extraction side, when we talk to uh, biomass sourcing, a lot of the times growers will give us their best COA, like their hottest cola, and be like, look, I grew 20% biomass. We don't care. And we just want to see a compliant COA. If you've got your compliant COA, we'll figure out the potency and the yields on our end because whatever a single sample is just not going to be representative. So uh so yeah, definitely keep those, those compliance. COA is your primary, uh, I mean CYA for le- legality, and then once you extract it, the work in process hemp exemption is not a verbatim legal. I mean, it's, it's a theory basically that protects us extractors from the THC spike because, like I said, you got a 10% cannabinoid profile, so it's 0.3% compliant. You get to 100% distillate or extract that 0.3 became 3%. Right now, nobody's been detained in the state of Texas. Uh, they specifically look at transport and sale uh, when they analyze that THC cap. So you keep it on your own roof. You can do THC remediation or dilute it. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, uh, so definitely talk to a lawyer if you are going to get into extracting to analyze that part of the liability exposure. But as of right now, they've given us a pretty, pretty safe space on as long as the starting product on the extraction side and the finished product, whatever comes out of our facility, that those are combined and we have kind of a shadow to work in for the time being until legislation becomes as common sense as it should be. So obviously one of the really important things is to
0: start with genetics that have a good ratio of CBD to THC and the potential to to reach that ratio Mm -hmm. with your techniques. Um, there's a lot of um, cultivars out there that may have a ratio less than uh, 20 to 1, CBD to THC, and it's going to be difficult to mature those to a point where you have a, a terpene profile that you like, as well as a yield that you like, and still stay compliant even in your pre But if you're looking at genetics that are a better ratio than 25 to 1, up into the 30 to 1 ratio, in most cases you're going to be able to mature your plant to like week 7 of flower, and have a, an already beautiful, sparkly-looking flower out there that's still gonna pass your pre-test. Um, and then to be able to actually really bring it into its um, full terpene profile will, will be fairly easy at that point. But starting off with genetics that have the potential to have the ratio that you're looking for between the CBD and THC is really important. That,
1: that's where things like uh, the classification of your seeds come in as type one, type two, type three, and all that, you can get into all that stuff, but- um, I know that you do focus on a lot of stuff that's specifically adapted to more warmer climates, and it's probably the thing that I see people uh, do the most wrong when they're choosing um, the right cultivar for Texas and Oklahoma and other southern states is they're, they're not growing stuff that's adapted to the climate here. You know, it doesn't matter if something's popular in the, in, this, in the, you know, for sale. If that's not adapted to your hot climate, it's just going to fry when you put it through, and you're not going to get anything. Right. So um, that's something I, I know that you spent some time on working on sussing out some of the hotter stuff, uh, hotter, warmer weather. So we talked about this yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'd love to maybe talk about that a little bit because it is something that is one of the biggest reasons why I see people fail aside from sterile fields. Though the hemp plant and cannabis plants in general are incredibly tenacious
0: and adaptive plants, um, um, if your seed comes from an area that matches your climate, your plant has a huge head start from multiple generations out of an area that matches your climate, those seeds are going to be ready and accustomed to, to the climate that you're putting in and not need to go through an adaptation period. That ad, ad, adaptation period, in a lot of cases, only your strongest plants are even going to make it through and you're going to lose a lot of plants. But if you put plants that are predispositioned through multiple generations of breeding in your climate zone you're gonna have a, a, a huge upper hand as far as the plants being able to adapt quickly, more of them adapt, and your whole field look a lot better. So when you're buying seeds, if you're buying seeds from a cool, wet state, and you live in a hot, dry state, that might be something you'd want to reconsider and get seeds that are coming from, first of all, an outdoor program, and not an indoor program where we can control our climate in any way, but an outdoor program with a climate that matches your climate quality seed production doesn't necessarily occur in an outdoor program, but we can match it in our our greenhouses so that we're um, absorbing the local climate and at the same time um, controlling our pollination. So where do your seeds come from? Does it match your climate? How are your seeds produced? Those are all huge factors in
3: determining whether they're going to work well in your climate and on He's got some seeds by the way, he has said it, but we've had some members that uh, grew your mountain mango, with pretty good success here, just so you know, so he's got some good seeds we've seen do really well here in Texas. Our seeds are, um, have been bred for the last
0: three years, like I say, in um, sort of the, the desert area of Southern California, which happens to match a lot of the, the climate challenges that Texas has now. Of course, Texas has multi varied climates One field might be a very different microclimate than a field that's just a few miles away, and obviously on the other side of the state we're dealing with microclimates that are different, but it's the challenging aspects of our climate that we really want to pay attention to. How hot does it get? How long does that heat sustain? What's the humidity factor? Um, When do we get cold nights? Do we get cold nights? Can Can we mature into the winter without cold nights? These are all like the limiting factors of a climate that we want to pay the most attention to. And with growing any plant, your plant will only do as well as the, the, the limiting factor. So you can maximize 10 factors that's going to make it do really well, but if you have one factor that limits it, your plant will only do as well as, as that factor allows it. So examining your, your limitations in your climate um, and trying to match your seed to, to those limitations really
1: give you an to. I think that uh, Texas is going to be really kind of have a unique advantage over some of the other um, uh, states out there because you guys don't have to worry about like the West Coast, they're beating the rains or they're screwed, right? It just it doesn't stop raining once that hits. You guys could have sativas and stuff that other parts of the country can't because of frost or snow. You know, especially your heavier, old-school sativas, it, it doesn't matter if you're going an next couple of weeks outside if you're going in an acreage, you're not trying to maintain a greenhouse and have that ultra-high turnover, right? So it is kind of a unique market advantage that Texans really have in terms of, hey, I have a longer growth season, we can let stuff mature longer and not have to worry about it, and we have the acreage and the space to allow, you know, if something does take a little bit longer, it's not a big difference in monetization unless you're doing you know, heavy greenhouse work. In fact, there's
0: ways to take advantage of that climate and not plant until after the heat of the summer, and relying on the fact that you're not going to have the freezing winter nights, you can um, uh, essentially treat a full season plant like an auto flower by planting into September into August. Um, your plant will stay small, but you will have avoided the most challenging part of your summer being that high heat, um, and so. Timing when you're planting and when you want to harvest in a mild climate that doesn't have freezing winter nights. Um, you could have multiple crops per season or um, avoid the challenges of, of your climate. Um, so, there's lots of ways that you can use your climate to your advantage. Figuring out those ways are, are really um, key in having a successful farm. Just circling around the
2: aquaponics here i um, curious when you were talking about how the, the, the plants themselves seem to be more fully expressed. In your experimentation, you found uh, maybe two or three species of fish that were produced and seem to have more of a happy symbiotic relationship with the plants, or did it have come down more to a fish's diet?
1: Sure, so um, it really comes – their fish species plays a, a small factor. Um, primarily, almost all my commercial customers are doing tilapia because uh, they're donating the fish for food production. and It's the easiest one to maintain, or they're doing butterfly koi because they have the best resale value of any fish that I can put in that size thing. Um, I'm trying to get one or two of my clients on the arowanas because they have an even better resale price than koi, and we have 1,200 gallon tanks everywhere, right? So like, we can we can breed them and house thousands of them, right? So it's we have access to stuff that would normally be kind of too big for the pet trade when they get to breeding scale versus when they sell them in the pet trade. So there is an advantage there that you can do that. Um, but in general, almost all of them are Koi Tilapia. Now, I have done also op- operations of Bluegill, Perch, uh um, And a couple of other herbivores. We also did a bunch of experimentation with herbivores and carnivores. Um, Herbivores produce a lot more phosphorus and less nitrogen than the carnivores. Uh, The protein content gets converted much more heavily into nitrogen uh, from the fish food. Uh, So the higher the fish protein content in the fish food, the higher your nitrogen output is going to be. So whereas with the herbivores like paku and other things like that, um, they tend to not have anywhere near as much. nitrogen output a little bit more high phosphorus. Um, the other fish I would say if you're something that you can monetize would be placos. Um, there's all kinds of cool placostomuses that are exotic and high end. You can breed them in a couple of pieces of PVC pipe at the bottom of your fish tank and they'll breed readily and you can resell a lot of them for thirty to six hundred dollars each. Right? So it's something that can and all you have to do to feed them, they're even easier. You can feed them your fan names. right? So that's they they're just herbivores. They don't even care. So I, I that's one of my favorite things to do: is grab a couple of fan leaves and toss them in the fish tank and watch the plecos swarm them like piranhas. I mean, it's just fun um, and something different. But that's really been the best thing as far as fish species it's just been tilapia or koi. Um, they're just much more bulletproof. Uh, people can screw up the chemistry more and not have to, you know, don't kill everything. Uh, but and then again, just resale value. Koi, just you know, butterfly koi. If I buy it at you know three dollars each when it's this size, I can resell them for you know. 80 to 120 dollars when they're this size right and after a year year and a half so my dollar per spent for fish pound uh, or fish food uh pounds spent is just so much higher with the butterfly quite anything else and they're unlimited high demand in, in the trade because every pond guy in the country wants nice ones right like every landscaper will resell them happily for them. So it doesn't matter where I am in the country, and the pet trade licenses as well, that's another big obstacle that runs into cannabis and kind of a weird legal loophole is that I can't get a meat processing license because meat inspectors are federal employees and they can't step foot in the Schedule One facility. So I can't kill the fish on site. I have to put them in a tank and take them next door to a different place that's licensed for it, uh, or I have to <coughs> sell them live or just frozen, uh, uh, fresh frozen, uh, just frozen in on ice. That's it. I can't process them, I can't knife them, I can't kill them. So we, we that becomes a problem for cannabis producers specifically. I actually helped write a grant for um, Langston University up in Oklahoma as a, for a mobile truck that could go around and basically fund self-fund itself by doing the processing for these cannabis companies, uh, and then they could get their genetic data on the aquaculture fish. So I don't know what happened with them, but I helped write a grant for that. I don't know if they ever got the grant for it. but. It's one of the weird legal problems that runs into aquaponics and cannabis because of the meat processing, and it's just something that eventually, hopefully, the Congress will address it when they do a federal bill, but it's just kind of funny. Some people don't think about it.
5: a question for you guys about lighting for indoor grows. I think I heard uh, you, you mentioned doing indoor growing, But in general, for any of you guys, um, I'm just curious, for lighting for indoor grow operations, what are the sort of top things that you would look for, specifically in a product, um, like a a grow light? What are kind of the key things you'd look for? And then on the other side of the coin, are there some things you kind of hate? What do you hate about indoor uh, grow lights? Just curious your thoughts on that, if you have any.
3: So, uh, when we're looking at a grow light, uh, probably one of the most important things that you want to know is how much is it going to cost uh, so figuring out what the wattage requirement of that grow light is and then doing some simple math there to figure out how much it's going to cost you to run that light. Uh, you know, a, a metal halide bulb, for example, is only 315 watts, while an HPS bulb maybe a 1,000 watts. So, um, you know, there can be a very big difference there as far as the energy demands, and electricity is next to labor. Uh, you know, it's going to be your biggest expense in, in an indoor grow. Um, I think right now, uh, I don't know where Suzanne is, she's in here, so I think we're paying about $400 right now a month for our lights. Of course, they're off right now because we just harvested, but when we're in bloom and we got all 26 of our LEDs on, then, uh, then that's day. Uh I know that uh, like for, for our LEDs, we looked for one of the ones that has like a distinct bloom and veg uh, cycle. And so there are some, uh, we kind of got one of the more probably mid grade LEDs. There are some really nice like thousand dollar LED lights out there that have uh, deep reds in them, uh, which are beneficial during flower. Uh, And then um, some of them you can actually target those LEDs, like actually point those LEDs right at your bud sites. Um, And so obviously price is gonna be a huge factor there on your lighting, LED lights are, very very expensive pretty much uh compared to your hps and hid lights so uh the other thing too that you need to think about is your exhaust um because your lights are going to generate heat uh your hps systems your metal halide systems usually are going to have some kind of exhausting um outlet that you can actually put uh your your exhaust pipe on Uh, what do you call it what they use an air duct, basically air duct piping uh, and you want to pipe that out of the room, obviously. So you need to figure out if you're going to have to do that uh, or if you have enough exhaust. We use LEDs. And even though I know a lot of people say LEDs don't put off heat, we still have to exhaust our rooms. Those LEDs still put off some heat. Uh, so we have a, a small exhaust fan on our grow room that allows us to exhaust that heat out. But, um, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to both of them. I don't know if, if you want to expand on your, your lighting
1: yeah, so I, I said first. Or I guess the num- first thing I would do is call your power company and find out what your transmission line capability is. Especially if we're going to build a bigger facility. I've had a couple of clients where we had to, you know, seriously consider whether or not we wanted to change properties because they did not have the power transmission capable to that property to actually build the full facility that they wanted to build. So that would be my first thing I would do. And then number two is make sure you have three phase uh, at your. Uh, uh, your facility switching to three-phase can cut your lighting cost by 40%. Um, so making sure, especially when you get into LEDs, that you're all three-phase. And then, personally, I, almost all my builds, I'm using Spectrum King these days, in terms of brand. Uh, I worked with them for a long time. We did a bunch of side-by-sides between 12 different end lights uh, and different grow tents, and they were the ones that won. And after that, we've been kind of sticking with them. Um, and, and, did back, you say Spectrum King? Spectrum King, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you appreciate um, it. But they're the ones that I personally use the most with my clients. Um, with the exception of I don't use it for cold nights because they're they don't have a cold night out. But I do use those for like greenhouse greenhouses and indoor, um, just because they over the years tend to have been, you know, the best price point to, to light out quick. So you know everything else. Um, but again, there's lots of different brands out there that work great. That's just the one that I personally recommend. Um, but. Uh, Those would be the basics. Also, make sure that you're not buying a light fixture. Like, if you're growing CBD and that's what you want to grow, don't get into the high UV outputs and all the other crazy stuff because UV actually increases that THC expression and reduces the CBD expression of the genome. So, it's not to say that it's going to like convert the plant, but it's going to increase that THC expression and increase your chance of testing hot versus that same fixture minus the UV. And there's a lot of different stuff. The same reason why, like, Um, uh, crops in the equator have a harder time testing below threshold versus stuff in, say, Canada or Russia because the angle of the sun is, is less red and more blue and it has less um, uh, direct UV radiation at those higher latitudes as well, um, so you, you don't end up with those that, that same expression that you do in the THC. Whereas if you're going to grow at the equator, use that to your advantage and maximize that for your THC. Right. So that's also a reason why you're seeing like you know certain regions of the world being more towards CBD or THC is because that's what you know the natural lighting is also you know playing a small small factor, but a factor. So that would be something else. Where there are LEDs out there that have UV and boast about it and stuff like that, or infrared. All that's going to do is you know increase your chance. Heat as well can also increase your THC expression. So you know again, that's why it's important to get cultivars that are actually adapted to the hot, the high heat you have in Texas, uh, and not just blindly. You know don't go get stuff from Canada and <laughs> try to grow it down here. It's not going to you know it's not going to give you the same COA. I'll tell you that.
0: Um, what I would add on, on lighting is that. Um, I think in the world of hemp, a lot of times, um, our profit margins can be slim, and using lighting can be very costly, whether it's the energy bill, whether it's the heat mitigation, whether it's the upfront cost of the equipment. Um, so what can we do to reduce that? Well, we have an amazing light source available on a daily basis, and it's the sun. And so if we can use a building or an environment where we can take advantage of the natural light in as many ways as possible, and only use lighting fixtures as supplements, that's going to be how we can cut down that bottom line again. Um, power is going to be extremely expensive, even when you set it up on your time of day, and you're using the most efficient lighting systems and the most efficient heat mitigation systems. You're still dealing with a, a lot of cost that you may have the ability to um, have to use. Um, so let's examine at first, what we can do to take advantage of the sun as much as possible. Then secondarily, how can we be most efficient with what other supplemental lighting we may need. Um, but to take lighting altogether and say, how can we replace the idea of indoor lighting with using our sun? It's going to increase our, our, our profit margins in the end. And if we can maintain that same quality, a lot of times when we're using um, artificial environments and artificial lighting, we can really tune it into the point where quality is like there. Um, so, what can we do? to do that same quality increase in a natural lighting environment without having to make the power company our partner um, because we don't need any extra partners as as far as growers. Um, The power company doesn't need to be the partner. If we could utilize power to increase our our profits, to increase our success, keep that built to a minimum in whatever way is possible.
1: Yeah, I second that. Definitely just, if you can build greenhouses, and just have the lights make the day longer, go that route. And then also, when you do that, turn the lights on like 3 or 4 a.m. to dawn. Don't turn them on in the evening. The snot-nosed 16-year-old kid down the street who might break into your place is going to notice the light on at 9 o'clock at night. He ain't going to notice it at 4 or 5 a.m. because he's not up at 4 or 5 a.m. Also, when you get to super cold climates, if we're just talking about climate control, uh, if it's super hot all day and I have the lights on at the end of that day, it ain't helping me. If I if it's super cold at night, or even if I have a really really cold night, I can flip the lights on. Maybe I'm screwing up my light schedule. I may be coming on half an hour an hour early, but it might help prevent that room from getting real cold. You can actually use it to help as a heat source, or just switch up your light schedule, knowing that we're coming into colder months. And then you know, again, just helping you out with that set way as a backup heat source, just to keep things going in colder months. Not so much issue so much in Texas, but other places I grow it.
3: We had a situation where um, we have an exhaust vent on our greenhouse, and we usually have our lights on in the evening time. And so you get a purple glow uh, coming out of that exhaust van. And uh, one night I'm sitting out on the patio, and here come two sheriff's cars. And then all of a sudden you see them get real slow and they're driving by that exhaust van. And sure enough, about a week later, we got a visit. Uh, from about five different uh, sheriff's department officers, all suited up, ready for a drug raid. Uh, they didn't get very far, uh, but uh, yeah, it's kind of funny what he was saying about somebody seeing their lights in my door. they just need police. <laughs> I
1: think you're doing something. That's something else too. If you see them and they're all kitted out, lock your dogs up. Yeah. Oh yeah, because they—they'll yeah. shoot them. They're not friendly to dogs. The number one thing we I mean, a lot is dogs are the best mitigation to have for theft on your farm. If someone sees a huge dog and it's barking on the other side of that fence, they're not going over that fence. I don't have to deal with them. I don't have to call the sheriff. I don't have to detain them myself. I don't have to deal with them at all. If I can intimidate them and make them run away and I don't have to physically interact with a thief, that's the number one goal for any security plan that we do is make them leave on their own so I don't have to touch them, deal with them, or otherwise file paperwork because they will always find a way to blame you, not always, but they try to almost always find something that you did wrong and allow them to get in, or, or if you have a fire, they're going to find you for something, so make sure that you double check, triple check all your electrical, put redundancies in, you know, sub panels, any, anything that you could have to prevent those types of issues where you have to deal with law enforcement or fire department is going to help make your life just a lot easier and smoother in general. Yeah, just touch base with them.
5: I mean, the first thing we did when we moved into the facility, called the local sheriff, called the yeah. local file department, them the open door policy, come check us out. I don't mean, because the farther rural you go, I mean, it's hard for us to keep up with the legislation. These guys, they don't care. This is still the culture clash in Texas, and they're going to come to get you, and you're going to have to fight, if you're lucky, to get recovered and seized material. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. We, very very transparent and have an open line communication
1: with any sheriff's department or a local LEO. D- I don't. I, I don't personally because we
3: did and it didn't. It did not stop the sheriff's from still thinking we were growing something. Yeah. We we contacted and let them know we were growing there. Uh, but what I will say is that we didn't have any plant seeds because we had all of our license, our lot permit, everything was in order. Uh, it was actually funny because the guy—they come up, they're all roided out, ready to, to come and bust down doors. And the minute we told them it's a hip farm, we have all of our documentation, you see their whole energy ego deflated. It was kind of funny, but
1: we we had a mixed bag of results. Stephen trying to contact him time. He see the hemp dealer did work. Yeah, it's definitely something I, I would second. Say that, you know once your full place is fully built out and you got the first couple of plants in, invite the sheriff over, to the local police department, just give them a tour. for no other reason if someone breaks in and is is screwing with your employees they know the layout of your facility to go do something about it right Right? but it can can help you too it's not just about trying to mitigate you know them harassing you they they could actually benefit you as well and i've seen that the other thing i will say in regards to law enforcement is put extra cameras in the system so the state's going to require you to have certain places on camera make sure you have other cameras the state is not aware of and it will save your butt, because if you do have a rogue sheriff that comes in and busts you and starts pocketing stuff, which happened in Sacramento, you guys can look this up, real famous case in Sacramento, where a local police department just had it out for this dispensary owner went in, they were taking cash out of the register, they were eating edibles right on the thing, but they went in and disconnected the cameras that were connected to the state. They didn't know they were still on camera, because the owner thought that one of his managers was stealing from the register, so he put hidden cameras in there. Well, the police happened to raid it two weeks later, and he caught them on camera committing a whole slew of crimes, right? So he was able to win a huge loss, multi-million dollar lawsuit and recover his stuff and get all of those cops fired, right? So if you, you know, actually plan it, right, you can protect yourself even from you know, the absolute worst case scenario uh, as long as you are smart about protecting yourself. Good. Hi, quick question about uh, outdoor growing, specifically in Texas. We haven't grown anything yet, but we're on the Blackland Prairie Strip along I 35. Heavy soil. Um, our area used to grow cotton, and they stopped growing it because of cotton I thought top uh, with soybeans. So I'm kind of skeptical, maybe. Uh, anybody up there, or even out in the audience, actually growing on the Blackland Prairie in the Dulbo in Texas? Uh, we grow in pots. I say stay out of the
3: ground. <laughs> Honestly, so much, uh, somebody mentioned earlier there that uh, so much of uh, the problem we see with grows is a lack of nutrition in the soil. Uh, and then not only that, we can also have um, uh, soil that doesn't drain very well. uh has a lot of clay in it. Uh, and uh, uh, if that happens, you can run into root rot, you know, things like that. We had some people that ran into that problem. So, uh, but I don't have any experience growing in that soil sorry
1: yeah it's a heavy soil it's a heavy clay
3: if it is a heavy clay and i don't know anybody else's opinion on it but i've heard that one thing you can do to aerate that soil is use uh, expanded shell expanded shell rock is really good in clay soils to aerate
1: if you have a heavier clay soil i would heavily 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 recommend especially if you haven't planted yet getting a cover crop in and then just mulching it back in. So like just tilling that right back in and getting the organic content on that up. I would also recommend, you know, don't go with plastic, white plastic or black plastic, go with cover crop because you're gonna want to introduce more organic roots into that system to help, you know, bust up that soil. Um, The other thing I would say is, think about even planting planting radishes and stuff like that to help, you know, really bust that soil. Daikons are really good for that. Um, Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of different ways, you know, maybe even if it's really bad, you know, even going as far as biochar, I normally do not recommend biochar, but if it's a heavy, heavy clay soil, you got to have something that to, to act as a sponge to hold those nutrients around. Otherwise, they're just going to get filtered through and, 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 and you know, not help you at all. So, you got to have that, that organic material to have that microbial uh, biomass to help start converting that, that clay into actual minerals again. Also, gypsum can be really helpful to break
0: down clay. Um, you know, if, if you amend and, and let it water in, your clay will naturally expand and aerate a little bit more itself. Um, but that, that process will continue on for years. Um, depending on how much clay is in your soil, if it's if, if water doesn't move through it, it's just not going to work. If water moves through it, your roots are going to be able to move through it as well. And they're going to be able to chase that water down and they're going to oxygenate themselves. And that's a major part of having a healthy hemp plant, is that your roots go to be drying and wetting cycles always stay wet and they have no reason to grow and if they have no reason to grow then the plant has no reason to grow. So as the soil dries the roots chase that water down into the soil and in a very thick clay environment that can happen. So it has to be sandy and loamy enough that your water can actually travel through it. Super easy test, take a five gallon bucket of water, pour it on the field, how long does it take before that water seeps into your field? Is it sitting there an hour later? Probably not going to work does it soak down into your field? You don't have any problems. Um, if, it, if, if it sits on top of your field, it doesn't go anywhere. You can till it. You can plant cover crops. You can put additives. You can fix it. But don't plant your hemp plants in heavy clay where the water is not going to drain because they're not going to. It.
1: If it's a smaller scale grower, I would even you know, go as far as say go with hugelbets have a bunch of trees and stuff that you got, you're going to cut down and brush and stuff like that. Build some hugel beds, especially if you're going to go smaller scale and you're not trying to go acreage. That can be a wonderful way that type of soil condition to kind of give you a bit of an advantage and give you back some of the stuff that you have until you can, you know, build out further. Again, it totally depends on the <coughs> because hugels are really awesome but they don't scale well. <laughs>
0: Oftentimes in the process of creating furrows and mounds too, if you create your mounds high enough like and your furrows deep enough, then you're gonna get oxygenation and drainage out of the side of the mounds as well, and it doesn't need to go straight down. Um, so basically, you just need to create a, a, an environment for your roots that brings in oxygen and that drains water out. So you can definitely do that by just setting a raised bed on top of your clay soil. Um, setting a raised bed on top can be very expensive, but tilling your soil in a way that creates those roots and furrows can oftentimes be enough to create the drainage and the oxygenation that it roots need. Then, as far as the nutrients that are, that are in that soil, it's actually pretty amazing how soils that seem fairly bland and, and um, don't express a lot of nutrient um, characteristics can still be enough for the hemp plant if that soil is charged with um, beneficial bacteria. And those beneficial bacteria can break down what's already available in the soil and feed it to the roots. Um, a lot of times you can use soil that's, that's, that really doesn't seem like it's very good, but just by opening it and unlocking its potential with that compost tea, you'll see your plants flourish. Um, so biologicals, drainage, oxygenation, these are going to be your most important factors for healthy roots. Healthy roots are your most important factor for healthy plants.
1: And if you go with the pre-made beds, don't, don't, don't buy the black ones. Also, don't use black plastic on the ground in Texas. You guys all know what happens to your driveway in July. The same thing happens to those soil protectants. Um, and I've watched people tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. Put a whole strip of them out, and they just roast. They
2: literally fall over because
1: they just it cooks the roots right off. Cooking your roots is bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that same thing happen to in black cloth pots. You know, buy the beige ones if you're in Texas. <laughs>
5: question back there. Hello. I live in an area that's between Laredo and Corpus Christi that has
2: a lot of caliche. I was wondering if anyone who's grown in the more hotter places has used caliche to aerate the
3: soil. Here, and I
5: did caliche, a
2: lot of caliche in the soil, in your
5: Laredo, between okay. okay. Laredo and Corpus. It's kind of like I have no experience with
1: that, on am sorry, Coliche. Clay. I'll defer. memory serves me right, it's really sandy, and kind of granite, gravelly out there, that way, right? <coughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. My knowledge of caliche is that it's really hard packed clay. Yep, yeah. okay. it's really hard. No Yeah, it's gonna be pretty rough without a pretty heavy amendment. You're gonna wanna probably do raised beds or you know, some other some other thing. We had, we had really issue, big issues with this. I, used to, I was up in Boulevard, actually, for a while, working on a project not too far in San Diego County, and we were uh, doing wicking beds. So we set up big wicking beds of living soil with a pipe at the bottom and some gravel, and then we could flood the water in there and have a water layer. And if it got, you know, 117, 115 degrees, they had water underneath it that they could drink and, and respirate and keep them alive, right? We had a whole vegetable garden and cannabis garden, in you know, heat and snow and everything else that you can think of up there. It's probably the single the most challenging place I've ever grown cannabis in terms of just everything is working against you except the bugs. There's no bugs up there, which is great, except for when the super blue happens. And it's like once in the blue moon it's in the spring before you ever get your plants in the ground, so it's not a big deal. But it's the only the only way that we were able to grow up there was just to do wicking beds because the heat between the heat and the, the climate, the low humidity and everything else, I, I would imagine it would be similar there, although your humidity is probably a little bit higher. that would be my my thing, especially if you're dealing with on you know, a smaller scale again. They're also called sips, or uh, what's the other name for them? When they bottom feeding,
0: cracking method. or are that's That's probably different names for the same thing. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need We're we'll to close.
4: <laughs> Any other questions, guys? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering if there are
3: any machinery companies for large scale production
2: here in Texas, ideally. you like? I think she's asking about any companies for extraction. Oh, um, large machinery companies for large scale production of hemp, um, like uh, harvesting. The echo is so bad, I can't understand what you're saying. Uh, is there a
5: large machinery company, like large, large scale, right? That's that's what the, for production, large scale machinery. I mean, I guess the main thing is to define large scale. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean there are, as far as the industrial side, we're still very much lacking in it extraction side, I was, I, I, it's kind of a moving target I'd say between five and ten of combined CO2 and ethanol operators in the state. Uh, Green Zero, we're here in Austin, Bayou City in Houston, uh, Waymaker Labs in Cleveland. Uh, there's a couple of guys that are vertically integrated that are not pinging on our radar, but there's a handful of guys around the state. But we consider ourselves the high end of the commercial scale, so that's why when I specifically ask what you define Large scale because the industrial scale is a whole other game. Whereas we could do a thousand, two thousand pounds a month, they can do that in an afternoon. Uh, so that what we consider
1: large scale, we don't really see it in Texas yet. No. Yeah, I, mean, I've, I had a chance to tour a facility up in DC uh, at a and they're doing ten thousand kilos a day. To give you an idea of what some of the and they have another facility that's significantly larger. It's coming up in Toronto that'll be able to do like triple that or quadruple that or something like that. I'll be gate. So, I mean, there's some industrial scales there. I was, just came back from South Africa and Zimbabwe, and they're building some massive facilities over there as well in terms of, you know, the acreage that they can do there compared to here is, is crazy. So, but again, they're never going to compete with the market that you have here. They're, they're two different products. You know, a lot of that stuff's going to Asia or, or Europe and stuff like that. from that you know, you can't import anything to the side of the pond. So, um, but they, they, my point is, is that the equipment scale has really changed the last three to five years in terms of the availability of a lot of this large scale drying equipment, uh, decording equipment, separator equipment, and all the rest of this stuff. Even large tricom head separators, uh, you know, at industrial scales uh, that are, you know, stuff that we haven't seen since the 20s and 30s since before we, um, you know, accidentally made it illegal the first time. Whoops.
2: Uh this is a pretty basic question. So when growing indoors in a perfect environment, does it not really matter where you source your seeds from, whether it be like a in a more wet climate or dry climate that it's grown in previously? I
1: mean, you, know, you would want to definitely make sure you have genetics, but it would be less of a factor. Again, in a in a closed environment a greenhouse, or controlled environment a greenhouse, you're gonna have control of everything, right? So uh, the biggest thing I would say in Texas and Oklahoma and anywhere else in the south, put geothermal under greenhouses. It will cut an enormous amount of, of money off of your air conditioning. It also helps dry the room out a little bit, so it makes it a little easier to hold the VPD in range when you get to like room scale, greenhouse watering and stuff like that. Um, it really helps just maintain stasis in terms of temperature and climate stasis. If it gets cold, I can pull 57 degree air out of the ground. If it gets hot, I can pull 57 degree air out of the ground. So either way, it's benefiting me. <laughs>
3: Okay. Is that all right, that close? I yeah. think you everybody. I <laughs> uh, break out, <laughs> I will be around and I'm sure you will be around too, so um thank you. Thank you so
5: much for sneak questions. I oh, mean on our uh, real websites and social media, feel free to reach out to me. Why don't you why
1: don't you go know the live? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Again,
5: um, Zachary Maxwell, if you wanted to learn more
3: about uh, Texas hemp growers, you can go to hemptx.org. Also, real fast, I, I wanted to just say that today we launched uh, a free farm management service that you can now sign up for at buddy.net. That's B-U-D-E-E.net. Totally free way now to manage all the data on your farms. I think you guys
5: will love that. And yeah, our greenzerolabs.com. Here in Austin on 290, here between, uh, between us and Dripping Springs. Uh, we try to do our best for educating uh, growers, uh, try to be open. Uh, we coordinate a lot with higher ed hemp tours for getting people in the facility and check out our, uh, our technology uh, and just educating people. And then our biggest thing recently, we've uh, put out an HD9, a hemp derived Delta 9 THC product. That's something that Proving the legality for it and expanding on that, but uh, something that's super exciting that we love to to put something new out there that we've considered that's been sitting there like, hey, we're here to call this in from the sidelines because it looks like we got at least another three years or so before more legal dominoes are going to fall in Texas. So, yeah.
0: And again, I'm Moses Levin with uh, CBDC Labs. You can check us out online, cbdclabs.com. We also have a booth to the left as you walk in here come by, uh, answer any questions you guys have, and and get you some seeds. Um, And I also have some pamphlets here with some information on our genetics. Everybody's welcome to grab one of those. Um, And uh, it's great to answer your questions.
1: You can find me at Pocaplonics, the SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, uh, all the different podcast apps up there. If you want to listen to my podcast, you can find out my website at Pocaplonics. I teach classes at apmjclass.com. I also have aquaponics, uh, fish safe nutrients, uh, at apngnewts.com. Uh, and I, I do have another talk on aquaponics here at 120 or 130, uh, and I don't know which exhibit hall, I think it's at 4, or maybe we're in, I don't know, it's somewhere here, if you look, you'll find it. This is 4. Okay. Thank you guys, appreciate it.